Our New Testament lesson today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, beginning with the first verse. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. The people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, "'You brood of vipers!' Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John the Baptist is memorable. He lives in the wilderness and hollers about repenting. He dresses in camel's hair and leather. He eats locusts and honey. Scripture tells us nothing about his hair, but you just know it was a tangled mess. And even if I'm wrong about that, He talks about a world that's a tangled mess. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. His message does not get any easier from there. Some old friends of mine from Kansas City were in town this past week. They took this city by storm from Broadway to Brooklyn and back again. I was able to join them for the Radio City Christmas Spectacular, something I had never witnessed before. Now, even if choreographed dancing isn't your thing, you have to admit the performance is impressive. For 90 minutes, a cast of 150 tell us some of the most beloved stories connected to Christmas. There are families and ice skaters, dancing bears, toy soldiers, sugar plum fairies, rag dolls, North Pole elves, reindeer, and at one point, about a bajillion Santa Clauses. But there's even Mary and Joseph, shepherds and magi, angels and sheep, donkeys and camels. It is Christmas through and through. But you know who doesn't grace the stage even once? John the Baptist. Now I will give them a pass because they are showing us Christmas and John the Baptist is the star of Advent. 
Now, if you have been attending Beverly's class on Christmas in all four Gospels, or even if you haven't attended, you might remember that only two of the four Gospels, Matthew and Luke, tell us the traditional Christmas story. Mark and John take dramatically different approaches, but that said, John the Baptist shows up in all four of the Gospels. At the beginning, no matter who is telling us the story, you have to go through John if you want to get to Jesus. So even if he's not exactly camera ready, John the Baptist is essential for us. The biggest part of our struggle, I suspect, is less what he looks like and more what he says. Had John attended seminary, he would have failed pastoral care. Barbara Brown Taylor, she is one of the most poetic preachers to ever step foot into a pulpit, and she calls John the Doberman Pincher of the Gospel. She calls him this, she says, because he sinks his teeth into us, shakes our souls around, and refuses to let us go. Merry Advent. It is precisely for this reason that my friend Shannon Johnson Kirshner, who's the pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago, she has never cared very much for John at all. But this year, she says, she is choosing to hear all of his fuss, not as a threat, but as an invitation. Now, I'm not suggesting that our evangelism committee take to the streets yelling, Repent! Repent and come to Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. Because to borrow John's own metaphor, that would not bear good fruit. You see, in many churches and in many caricatures of churches, the message repent is tied to a sort of turn or burn theology. And that sort of teaching has done far more harm than good. Turn to God or else is not the good news of the gospel. But even if that sort of ultimatum was never in your early formative education, you may have long understood repent to mean basically telling God that you are really, really sorry and you will never do it whatever it happens to be, you will never do it again. Or maybe you grew up a very good Calvinist and believe, along with our Reformer, that we are all worms, lower than dirt, and we have little chance of ever becoming better. To be fair, both of these approaches highlight the very real struggle of being human and our very real need for confession which shows up in our liturgy each week. But I submit to you that the acknowledgement of our mistakes is only a small part of the vastly big picture of repentance. A number of years ago, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, they wrote a book together called The First Christmas. In that book, they track the biblical history of repentance. And they point out to us that in the Old Testament, the verb for repent is shaped primarily by the Jewish experience of exile. To repent in the Jewish tradition means to return from exile back to the place of God's presence. To repent, or to return, 
is to follow the way that has been prepared, leading you out of separation from God. The prophet Isaiah says it, Matthew quotes it, Prepare the way of the Lord. Return back from estrangement. Turn back into the arms of the one who loves you and looks out for you. That is why Matthew and the other gospel writers are so quick to emphasize John and all of his wilderness ways. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness, and that wilderness experience is all part of the process of leaving oppression behind and experiencing liberation on the other side. And so maybe, just maybe, repent really is more of an invitation than a threat. What if what John is saying to us is more like, repent, come home, walk into freedom from everything harmful or hurtful. Walk away from everything that holds humanity back from life as it ought to be. When we encounter the same word in the New Testament, the Greek language adds another nuance. The, Greek, the root of the Greek word, metaneo, that means to see differently or to think differently. Even more literally, it means to go beyond the mind that you already have. To go beyond the mind that you already have. None of this is easy, but all of it leads to us acting and living differently. In the New Testament, to repent is to change, but it is not to change just for the sake of change itself. We change, or we repent, we live differently when we understand that our actions are out of step with God's plan and desire for all of creation. Now, Scripture is simply overflowing with images of God's desire for creation, but nowhere more beautifully than in the words that Timmy read and Rebecca reminded us of. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid. They will not hurt or destroy. There will be peace, deep and lasting peace, God desires that the world be a place where we consider one another with compassion and love, where all of creation is filled up with the shalom of God. And that desire, I think, is exactly what John means to convey with all of his over-the-top enthusiasm. As one scholar of the text puts it, he says, If John the Baptist had only cried repent, he would have been wasting his breath. People do not simply turn away from one way of life. They do so only when there is something deeper and truer to turn toward. John gives the reason for repenting when his message does not stop there. His message is never just repent. It is repent for the kingdom of God has come near. And for those of us who follow God in the way of Jesus, Jesus is what defines that new way of seeing, that new way of thinking, that way of returning home to God and God's great hopes 
for the world. Now I know that there is quite a bit remaining in our text this morning, including that whole brood of vipers bit. But that part and all that follows it is directed at religious leaders like me. There he is more directly confrontational. John and I will need to work that out on our own time. What you and I have been talking about today is the way that John addresses the general crowds. It has always seemed so strange to me that he yells, repent, and the next thing we know, hordes of people run into the river to be baptized. The people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and all the region along the Jordan. The way of God has never been to scare people into submission. So it makes much more sense to me if they understand what they are hearing as an invitation into bigger and more beautiful living. What if all of those people standing on the edge of the river saw not madness in John's eyes, but a smile? It's possible that the wild-haired, honey-eating, camel-hair-wearing, edgy wilderness man is not yelling with threat of doom and gloom. It is possible that he is yelling with an equally intense tone of hope and summons. It could be that John's call for repentance is based on the deep trust he has that God's goodness is always more powerful than our badness and that God's power to heal us and make us new is always stronger than our power to mess up or stay stuck. And if any of that is true, what does John's invitation to repentance mean for us today? If we really can't get to Jesus without going through John, and the gospel insists that we can't, How might we take John's words seriously? David Lose is a theologian at Luther Seminary in Minnesota. He has asked three questions of the church this week. First, he says, take the time to daydream what God's vision might be for you. What do you think God wants you to be, and what do you think God wants you to do? And he says, remember that daydream is a very purposeful word because God is always inviting us to dream of something beyond what we can currently see. It is not a goal to be achieved, but a dream by which to set our course. God does not ask us if we are there yet. God asks if we are heading in the right direction. Secondly, in light of that daydream, choose one element of your life that you would like to repent of. Lou says, choose one piece of life you wish to take advantage of the healing opportunity to change direction. Is there a relationship that you would like to restore, a habit you would like to break, or a practice you'd like to take up? And again, hear this call to repent said with the tone of invitation and possibility and dedicate this season of Advent as the time to do it.
And finally, identify one element in our communal life that needs repentance and prayerfully discern how you might be a part of that. Now, by communal, I mean not even just us as a church, but us as a city, the larger life that everyone around us shares together. Might there be a communal issue to which God is nudging you to give your time and action to really help bring about change. If you are unsure where to start, consider our open table meal ministry or our overnight shelter program. Or talk to me about food pantries that are being established to serve college students because I learned recently that staggering numbers of our students run out of food toward the end of every month before the next financial aid check arrives. There are countless other opportunities all around. Ask God if there is one way you might make a difference, one way you might see something you hadn't seen before, and work to make a better and holier reality. Now your responses, of course, are between you and God, but I encourage you to take this set-apart Advent season to ask them. God has a profound respect for human freedom. God never forces God's self on anyone. We need to make the intentional choice to open ourselves up if God is going to move in our lives. Repent, John preaches. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He is not the most marketable, but he is essential. He is inviting you to come home and be the person that God created you to be. And even more than that, he believes that you can do it. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.